Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you some of the more scandalous and fun sides of American history. Uh, we are really excited to have you here with us today. I am, of course, Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And together, we're the Hello, Rebecca's. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we have a really fun podcast topic for you today. But before we jump in, this is May. This is going to be our last month of a full schedule. As we go into the summer, we're going to uh, have a little bit of a summer vacation schedule. So just be aware that we'll be doing two full-length episodes plus a little bonus episode, usually an interview or a chat with someone else. If you are a patron, thank you so much. We love our patrons. Patrons will get early access and expanded access to some bonuses and goodies over the summer. But don't freak out uh, when it gets to be June and you don't hear us in your ear holes as often. This will just be temporary. It'll be a chance for us to get out there and lead tours and a chance for you guys to enjoy your summers. Speaking of, if you're in D.C. or you're planning to travel to D.C. this summer, we will have a full tour schedule uh, happening, so be sure to go to dcbyfoot.com or follow us online and see what we have going on for the summer. We have some really fun summer tours, so you can actually come and see us in person. Yes, it's very exciting. We're going to have a whole tour schedule, and we're back to almost normal, and it's going to be really great. So we'll reduce the pod just a little bit. And then we'll be back at you in September, hopefully with even better ideas. And it'll be <laughs> wonderful. Uh, we have a really fun episode today. We wanted to sort of do a little bit more of a roundup episode. We haven't done this since we did presidential drinking. But we want to talk a little bit about presidential children and kind of run through the good, the bad, the infamous, the not so famous, and talk about some of our uh, presidents and their, their offspring, their kin, as it were. So this is going to come out right before Mother's Day. So that was part of the impetus for this, a little bit of, you know, their children. Shout out to the moms. Shout out to all the mommies. They're the bestest. We've talked about some presidential children already. They've gotten their own pods. Our very first pod was Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Uh, we've also talked about Robert Todd Lincoln. He's gotten his own pod. And there are a lot of really interesting presidential children, some of which deserve their own pod, frankly. They're whole, like a whole thing. Some of them are people no one's heard of. It's really kind of a mixed bag. And I feel like one of the things that was interesting to me, like in sort of doing the research for this was unlike their, their presidential fathers, it takes a certain kind of personality to be a politician. You have to be pretty self-important, a little bit of like arrogant and ambitious. There's a certain through line, I feel like, through running for politics that doesn't necessarily translate to their children. And some presidential children react really well to having famous fathers. Some of them react badly. And it just sort of runs the gamut of the human experience. And it, being a good at being a politician, being good at being president does not translate to being a good dad. Sometimes it does but sometimes quite memorably not. <laughs> so I thought those was really kind of cool. And the other thing that surprised me is that a surprising number of our presidents have experienced the loss of a child either before or during their presidency, like half, half of our presidents. We've had 45 men be president of the United States. Half of them have lost a child. And recently, President Biden, President H.W. Bush. Not all 19th century 
either. Right. This isn't all 19th century when they had 15 kids because some of them didn't live like Reagan. Um, this is really kind of recent too. So I feel like that sort of informs a lot of presidents as well. So there's that kind of element, but I wanted to start out and give Becca a little bit of a quiz. We're going to do a quiz here. Oh, I don't like pop quizzes. <laughs> it's going to be fun. No, no, no. It's going to be good. The first question is, uh, there are four presidents who's been having children while, well, their spouses, their partners have been having children. They've been doing the heavy lifting, but they've been having children while they are president. One of them is pretty easy. One of them will be easy to you, but two of them I think are going to be a little harder. So four presidents who had children while they were, while they were in the White House, children while they were living in the White House. Yes. So Grover Cleveland. Yes. Because he marries while he is president yep. in his second term, uh, he marries Francis Cleveland uh, and they have children. So that's one for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, let me think, thinking, thinking, presidents while who have children while they're in the White House. Was that the one that was easy to me was Cleveland? Yes. The one that would be easy to you was Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that would be so. Uh, I'm going to say Tyler. Yep. That was a harder one. Because Tyler had a ton of children. So statistically, some of them had to be while he was in the White House. Okay. So I got 50% already. So I'm, I'm pleased to know. Okay. I gotta, I've got to work this out. I'm going to say, oh, oh, because I feel like I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think about like ages of wives and stuff too. I'm going to say John Quincy Adams. I don't think that's right, but that's going to be a guess. No. Nope. Um, I'll try one more wrong guess. Likely wrong guess. You're missing the super obvious one. I'm missing the super obvious one who has a baby in the White House. Yep. Super obvious. Oh, um, is it baby Ruth? No. Well, that was Cleveland, right? Yeah, it was Cleveland. Yeah. Um, oh, there's. I'm going to like kick myself and be like the super obvious had a baby while in the White House. I'm like, I'm like, is it recent? Um, but not that no, it wouldn't have been that recent. Um, it's in the last century. In the last century, had a baby while living in the White House. In the last century. Century. Um, that was an inside joke for my husband who doesn't even listen to this podcast. Century. <laughs> um, Coolidge? Is it Grace? Nope. Nope. No. No, I, I really don't know. I, I, I will make no more wrong guesses. Fair enough. John Kennedy. While in the White House. Yeah, they she had a, a son that died like three months oh, before Patrick. he did. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the, the one that's harder. I forgot about Patrick. Yeah. The one that's harder that not everybody is going to get, and I'm not surprised you didn't get this, is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, his, Sally Hemings had two babies by him while he was president of the United States in his 60s, FYI. Um, so yeah, that's right. That's right. I was thinking too much about, about wives and not about non-wives. Yes. <laughs> that's why I said partners. <laughs> yeah, no, that was very smart. Very smart. The other question I have is who has the award for the most children who wins? Tyler. Tyler has the most children. There we go. John Tyler. John Tyler may not be famous for much at all in his presidency. <laughs> I think the average American probably has no idea who John Tyler is. But let me tell you guys, he had some prodigious little swimmers because that dude had some kids. Yeah, he had. Yeah, we'll get to it. But he, yeah, oof, he had kiddos. So let's start from the beginning. You want to do George Washington? He's pretty easy. Yeah, 
let's talk about George Washington. He is indeed the father of our country, but ironically is not a biological father. He fathers no children himself that we know of, and there's no evidence that he he did. When he marries Martha Park Custis, she is indeed a widow with two children. So um, at the time that he marries her, she has already been married. She's already had well, three kids, but two that have lived into childhood. So they are going to raise those children. Those children of Martha's will be raised by George. He, by all accounts, treats her children and the subsequent grandchildren as his own. He treats them as heirs in every way, including legally. His technically stepchildren and step-grandchildren are adopted by him. They will receive inheritances from him. They will spend time at Mount Vernon. So while he fathers no children with Martha, uh, he helps Martha raise the two that she brings into their marriage and then those grandkids, some of whom are somewhat notable. I think most notable is probably George Washington Park Custis, who we talked about on our Arlington National Cemetery podcast. He builds the estate that becomes Arlington House. He owns the land that becomes Arlington National Cemetery. I'm also a fan, though, of some of his other grandchildren, including Martha Park Custis, who will go on to create Tudor Place here in Washington, D.C. and Georgetown. Uh, she will buy that property and turn it into the beautiful estate that it is today. So um, there's some really interesting Custis Washington offspring. And if you come and take a Georgetown tour with us, those names will come up often because uh, many of them will settle or have property in the Georgetown area. So George Washington, technically no biological children. So John Adams, him and Abigail have six kids. Two daughters die in infancy, their last two, but they have their oldest daughter is named Abigail. And they, because that's the name of her mother, they nickname her Nabby, which it has my vote for worst nickname of a presidential child ever. That's a tough one. Uh, they then have John Quincy Adams, Charles, and Thomas. And John Quincy Adams goes on to become president himself. And I feel like the Adams family like really encapsulates so many different things about presidential children. John Quincy Adams is drilled into him from being a young man that his life is given for the country. Like he's public service and sort of uh, respect for others and sort of helping this new country grow. And that really is something he takes to heart and goes be and becomes sort of a, a public servant, a lifetime public servant. Um, Nabby is also very much her mother's daughter. She's strong-willed, she's independent. Some Sometimes to her own detriment, sometimes she clashes with her parents, but she's very much a powerful woman. And had she been a man, she would have been definitely a financial success. But their other two children, Charles and Thomas, both become lawyers, but they both fall into alcoholism pretty early on in life. And there's a lot of like later on, Abigail Adams will spend a lot of her sort of later years kind of rescuing one or both of her younger boys from whatever entanglements they've gotten themselves into. So I feel like you have the like successful presidential children and the sort of not sexy, you've got both sides of the coin with uh, the Adamses. It's also, I think, a classic example of the pressure that often befalls the first child, that spotlight and pressure, and especially in this era where the statistics, statistically, having that child survive infancy and then surviving childhood, there's a lot of pressure once you get to that point. And then I think you sort of see that, and I'm obviously an older child, as you hear me, oldest child, as you hear me say this, but then you get to those second, third sons and some of the pressure's off, or maybe some of the tension's off, and they're a little more likely to get into trouble. Yes. 
Yes, that's true. And we can see this play out with, I think, quite a few presidential sons along the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get, that'll be a theme. Thomas Jefferson has six children with his wife. Only two of them live past babyhood. So they have kind of some bad luck. And in fact, only one of his two daughters makes it past the age of 25. His younger daughter marries and has a couple kids, but she dies before she turns 25. And then it's his oldest daughter, Martha, who is going to live. She has an insane number of children herself, I think 17 kids. Uh, And so she's the one who's going to be the caretaker for her father. Uh, She's sort of his hostess when he's in the White House. uh, And she's very much like her and her children are very much part of his later years after he his retirement. Jefferson also has eight children with Sally Hemings, the enslaved woman that he makes his mistress. Four of them are going to live to adulthood. Four of them die as babies and four of them live to adulthood and are eventually going to be freed. Three of them disappear into history. They had enough white ancestors that it is presumed that they passed as white, had children and just joined white society. Their youngest son, Esten, it is not clear why, but he does not pass as white. He either was too dark skinned or didn't want to, but he is going to go on and have children of his own. He has living descendants to this day. Uh, and so we, there are many people who can trace their ancestors back to Thomas Jefferson through Eston Hemings. So that's Jefferson's two families. So let's talk James Madison and Dolly Madison. So Dolly Madison, and this is going to be a bit of a theme, I think, especially in this era. Dolly Madison's a widow. Uh, When she marries James Madison, she had lost her husband to yellow fever that had swept through Pennsylvania, but specifically Philadelphia. Like 10% of the city's population died. Uh, And that includes her first husband, John Todd. So she had a child already, a really no good Nick guy by the name of John Payne Todd. He's to me kind of the first real no good Nick presidential kid because he is just trouble from the beginning. By the time she marries James Madison, uh, Madison's considerably older than her. They have no children together, she and James. But um, at the time that she marries James Madison, her son, John Payne Todd, is only two. So James Madison really tries to be a good stepfather to John. He gives him just about every opportunity that could be afforded uh, landed gentry at this time. He is going to try to get him a good education. He is going to try to send him to a boarding school um, and really try to get him in line. But John Payne Todd just is like trouble. They say often he's unsuited for academic work, which I don't know if they're trying to say he's just not that smart or he's lazy. I'm thinking it's the latter. And he just never really grows up. John Payne Todd never really has a career. He never really becomes anything but an alcoholic and a gambler. He is a man with a very quick temper. He's often known for public fighting, shooting incidents, duels. He goes to jail on and off throughout adulthood from the time he's about 19 to his 50s. He is in and out of jail. He's in and out of debtor's prison. This is particularly frustrating. Madison tries really hard to like give him opportunities. He even like makes him a like a not quite an ambassador, but sort of part of this like delegation that's going to go to Europe. But Todd spends the entire trip shooting, drinking and buying art that he can't afford. And he basically comes back in debt. And Madison's like, this is the opposite of what I was hoping was going to happen. And unfortunately for poor Dolly Madison, with James being so much older than her, she's going to be widowed a second time. And she is now in trouble because her 
son has really just spent all the family money and she has bailed him out so much times. She's essentially impoverished because of her son. She is going to have to sell their plantation home of Montpelier to cover his debts. Um, she is going to have to really rely on the generosity of others in her later life. And she just kind of never cuts him off, which, you know, it must have been hard. Your only son, your only sort of tie to her first husband. But she, she just never really, I think she enables him too much. I don't want to cast too much judgment on Dolly. Uh, and he only lives like two years after she dies. And I think it's because he didn't have his gravy train anymore. He didn't have somebody who was kind of keeping him a little bit above ground. But if you ever sort of wonder why Dolly Madison doesn't live out her life at Montpelier, why she doesn't uh, live in the style to which a lot of um, people would assume a former first lady lives. It's because of her son, who was really just nothing but a weight around her neck, I think. James Monroe has three children. His son James dies at 16 months, but his two daughters, Eliza and Mariah, live. Uh, Eliza, her husband actually is the prosecutor of Aaron Burr, uh, when Aaron Burr does many unsavory things and Aaron Burr is a whole mood and we'll do a whole thing about him at some point because he's fascinating. Uh, Mariah, though, it becomes the first White House bride. Aww. Certainly not the last. Isn't that nice? Yes. John Quincy Adams. Uh, no. Can I do John Quincy Adams? Please do John Quincy Okay. So... John Quincy Adams, who comes up in so many podcasts, he has a prickly relationship with his father. So it's not surprising to me that he ends up having a bit of a prickly relationship with his own children. So he and his wife, Louisa, will have four children, three sons and a daughter who does not live to adulthood. The three sons, it's kind of like almost an echo of his upbringing. There's a lot of pressure on, on that oldest son, George Washington Adams. That pressure is a lot. Then there's John Quincy Adams III, and then there's Charles Francis. You put all that pressure on that first son, George cracks. It's too much for him. John Quincy Adams gets a lot of pressure on him, the third. He cracks. It's really only Charles who becomes successful as a politician, the only one that kind of pulls himself, I think, into a successful adulthood. George is going to become an alcoholic. He is going to really, truly struggle. He takes his own life in 1829. This is devastating to John Adams III. John Adams III is already having some struggles, having some difficulty. He does try to study law. He does go to Harvard. You know, he tries to do all the things you're supposed to do. But then he goes to a reception at the White House during his father's presidency. And there is an anti-Adams reporter there, a man named Russell Jarvis. And Russell Jarvis believes that the president, John Quincy Adams, has insulted his wife, Mrs. Jarvis. And so he tries to duel with John Adams. Uh, I keep saying the third, but he's John Adams the second. He's the third in the line of the John Adams. It's, it's confusing. But uh, he tries to initiate a duel with John Quincy Adams' middle son, uh, and he refuses. He refuses to take part in this duel, which then he's mocked for. He's basically torn apart in the press and called a coward. This ends up turning into a fight a few days later at the Capitol inside the rotunda where Russell Jarvis attacks John Adams II. He pulls his hair and nose and slaps him across the face. 
Adams refuses to retaliate, which is kind of what you should do. It's what we tell people they should do. Turn the other cheek and move on. The House of Representatives is going to investigate this attack and basically just decide, you know, it's not, it, nobody's at fault here. But this is really like, I think, I don't want to say the death knell for John Adams II, but between the loss of his brother, his brother's own alcoholism, his brother's death, then this highly publicized, embarrassing incident, he just really descends into darkness. He's going to just lose himself inside a bottle. Um, his poor mother, Louisa Adams, just really never recovers from watching her son go through this. It's really just kind of a tragedy. He doesn't really live, I mean, I guess in that era, he dies at 31, which is really, really young. It's really unfortunate. He's actually buried at Congressional Cemetery, uh, which is interesting. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He's buried at Hancock Cemetery. Uh, I was thinking of the no good Nick, Payne Todd. He's buried at Congressional. Okay. Andrew Jackson doesn't have any children. Biologically, no, bi no biological children. No biological children. Sorry, you're correct. Uh, he has no biological children. He adopts three sons. Two of them are Native American, which is always something that really is kind of odd about Andrew Jackson because... Andrew Jackson's Indian removal policy is really terrible. And it's one of the things that he's justifiably not uh, a good guy, but he helps raise a bunch of extended family members. He takes in two Native Americans and raises them as his own sons. So he really shows this streak of sort of patience and, and goodwill and sort of trying to raise people that he's very much a family man, even though him and his wife don't have children. Do you want to do Van Buren? Yes, I do. I love Martin Van Buren, old blue whiskey van. Um, Martin Van Buren has five kids, four of which live to adulthood. Abraham, John, Martin Jr., and Scott. My favorite of the Van Buren boys there is their son, John. John Van Buren, which it can be confusing if you Google him because there's a ton of John Van Burens not related to Martin Van Buren. So just a heads up uh, if you decide to dig into him. But he's a lawyer. He becomes a lawyer, a politician. He'll be attorney general for a time being. He really does kind of, I think, follow the path that a lot of presidential children do. You know, he goes to good schools and he tries to use his family name to build kind of a good life for himself. He's very interested in diplomacy. He tries to get some congressional appointments when his father's career takes off. That doesn't exactly work for him. So he kind of has to build his own career in law practice. But he does go to England. He's there when Queen Victoria is coronated. Queen Victoria really takes a shine to John Van Buren. He gets invited to a bunch of coronation-related events. He's there when she has, like, her first big thing for Parliament. And then he dances with her at a party. And this kind of, like, captures the imagination of the American press that this American son of a president, or at the time, you know, sort of son of an important American politician gets to dance with the queen and he gets the nickname Prince John. Uh, and that's what he gets referred to because he's friendly with the queen. My favorite thing about him is he does marry. Uh, he, by all accounts, has a very respectable facing life, but he was definitely surrounded by a bunch of innuendo about his personal life that he, like a lot of politicians, probably carried on with other women particularly a woman named Elena America Vespucci, who was a descendant of 
Amerigo Vespucci. So he was involved with Miss Vespucci intimately, allegedly, and he was also a very um, avid card shark, and he enjoyed playing cards. And in one card game, he was rumored to have lost $5,000, his father's home of Lindenwald, and his mistress, Elena, who he had to give up his relationship with because the man he lost the card game to also had been starting to fool around with Miss Elena. And so in one card game, he was rumored to have lost his mistress, his father's home, and a cool five Gs. It's probably not true. Let's be honest. It's a really ridiculous story, but it makes me laugh. And um, it's definitely, I think, indicative of the rumors that went around about his gambling and about his, um, his extramarital affairs. He's also credited with possibly having coined the phrase, vote early and vote often, which is a Grawl family favorite. Vote early and vote often, because he was possibly connected to some ballot stuffing in, in New York State. And I don't want to shock you listeners if you're like, oh my gosh, politicians in New York could have been dishonest in the 19th century. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. William Henry Harrison, our shortest tenured president. He had 10 kids because that's how they did stuff back then, man. Nine of them lived to see their 18th birthday. The most famous of which is John. He's going to be the father of Benjamin Harrison, who will later go on to be president himself. Uh, So John Harrison is the only person so far in American history to be both the son and father of a president. Uh, William Henry Harrison is also rumored to have had six additional children with an enslaved woman. But the evidence for this is contradictory. And this is going to be something that is going to dog several of our early presidents. It is not clear. Like for Thomas Jefferson, it is clear there's DNA evidence that he fathered um, at least one of Sally Hemings' children and probably all of them. But for others, it is not clear whether their political opponents made this up to sort of slander them. It is clear that they owned people, which is not obviously really great, but whether or not they had children with their enslaved women is a little bit more murky. Uh, William Henry Harrison, the dates do not seem to line up with the this particular enslaved woman. Uh, he does not seem to have been anywhere near her uh, at the time that she would have been conceiving uh, the six children that he was rumored to have parented. The rumors are not based on a lot of uh, evidence. John Tyler is our winner, winner, chicken dinner. Uh, Most children by a president. Eight kids with his first wife, seven with his second, uh, including his daughter, Pearl, who's born in 1860, less than two years before his death and lives through the second world war. So the 10th president of the United States had a child that lived after the until after the second world war which is astonishing john tyler had 15 total children and i'm gonna go on a limb and say that he's gonna hold the record of most presidential children probably for the foreseeable future i don't think think we're gonna get anybody close to 15 anytime ever probably again uh he also does have a living grandson So apparently having children later in life runs in the family. One of his children uh, is going to have a second marriage, just like his dad did, had a bunch of children later on in life, just like his dad did. And one of them lives to this day in rural Virginia. He's in his nineties. And as I understand it, not in the best of health, uh, but him and his, he had a brother that died in the last year or so. Both of them lived together into their nineties, grandsons of the 10th president of the United States, which is crazy town. I just have to say. 
Uh, President James Polk is quite unique among our presidents because he and his wife, Sarah, are the only presidential couple to have never had children together, together, not just biologically, but to have adopted or had children from a previous marriage. So there is another president who didn't have kids, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this is a couple who never do and they don't get them through all the other ways that we've sort of talked about. So um, the Polks are really unusual in that regard. It's very, very rare to have somebody in the White House who has not had children in some way or had children who have become part of their family. Um, The Polks do become legal guardians for a couple like legal wards for some sort of nephews and nieces, great niece really, but it's really like very, it's not like a raised by them sort of situation. So um, the Polks are really unusual. And then there's Zachary Taylor, um, who Rebecca blew my mind with her little fun tidbit about Zachary Taylor's daughter. Um, They had six kids total, two girls which die young, and then four that sort of um, live at least towards adulthood. But Rebecca, you want to share your fun fact about Zachary Taylor's daughter? This blew me away when I found it out. Zachary Taylor's daughter, Sarah, marries Jefferson Davis, who was at that time uh, a rising politician. He later goes on to become the president of the Confederacy during the Civil War, which is why you would have heard of him. Uh, She does not live to see this. She's a very short-lived marriage. They're married like less than four months and she dies of an illness and she's only 21 years old. Uh, so she's his first wife. Uh, the woman he's married to while he's president of the Confederacy, her name is Verena. Uh, she's quite a bit younger than Jefferson Davis is, and they have some children of their own. But Zachary Taylor's daughter married Jefferson Davis. I find that to be crazy. How is that not a thing? She met him when she was 17, and she was like smitten like a kitten. She waited basically almost four years to marry him. That's how much she was sort of in love with him. Uh, And Zachary Taylor was quite fond of Jefferson Davis as a soldier, because at this time, he's a soldier in the United States Army, like many of these men were. But he was kind of opposed to the marriage. And so her father's reluctance uh, is what sort of makes her wait. She waits until her father basically will give his blessing. And then she finally has this happy marriage. And then like three months later dies. It's really quite tragic. Millard Fillmore, two kids, Millard and Mary. Mary was frequently his hostess while he was president since her mother uh, was quite ill. Millard Jr. becomes a lawyer. Uh, Franklin Pierce, secretly fierce, has three children, including Benjamin. All are going to die very young. It's very tragic. And for more information on that, see our episode about presidential drinking. There is a direct cause and effect there. James Buchanan, Becca, do you want to take James Buchanan? James Buchanan never married. He's our only bachelor president, our only president to have never married at any point in his life and thus um, never had children. And to the best of our information, never fathered a child and while not married, um, which also is kind of unusual <laughs> among presidents, uh, especially in this era. He does have two nieces, which he adopts. One niece, Mary Elizabeth Spear, doesn't live very long. She uh, dies in her 20s um, in childbirth. But his other niece, Harriet, Rebecca Lane, actually lives quite a long time. 
and will become essentially his first lady, becomes a really important political figure. We have talked a little bit about Harriet Lane on the podcast. If you haven't listened to our special episode on the James Buchanan Memorial, that goes a little bit more into his relationship with Harriet and all the ways in which he was kind of a great adopted father. I don't have a lot of good things to say about James Buchanan as like a president or a politician, but I have to say as a father, the way he raises Harriet in this era, in this 18, 1830s to like 1860s time period is really quite progressive. So I find it sort of fascinating that terrible president, but really kind of a good dad, adopted dad. And I'll take Lincoln, which is rare. Normally Becca does, but uh, to hear the full uh, story about the Lincoln children, definitely listen to our podcast about uh, Robert Todd Lincoln. Lincoln has four sons, two of whom outlive their father uh, and only one of whom makes it to adulthood. So we'll just breeze through Lincoln. Johnson, Andrew, uh, married almost 50 years, which shocked me, partly because it's Johnson and partly because of the time period, people kind of died really young. Okay, they have five children. Uh, his daughter, Martha, was his eldest She's his hostess. Um, his wife, by the time he becomes president, his wife is kind of elderly and isn't really into being White House hostess. So his daughter, Martha, steps in and she is going to really be as much as much humanizing as uh, Andrew Johnson ever gets. She's going to be the one that does it. She really sort of disarms people with her sort of plain spoken Tennessee style. She doesn't put on a lot of airs in the White House. Uh, and she's going to be very much uh, his sort of door and window to like normal people as best she can. Do you know where she went to school and learned how to be such a good hostess? I do not. Lydia English's School for Girls in Georgetown, which we have. Oh my gosh. We have mentioned this a few times on the podcast, but if you take one of our historic Georgetown tours or you take a women's history tour of Georgetown with us with a tour of her own, we talk about Lydia English's school, but she attended school there and very much part of the curriculum was learning to be a proper hostess. And so that's where Martha Johnson went to school. It blew my mind when I read that because I was like, of course she did. It makes total sense. I love that. Ulysses S. Grant has four kids. Frederick becomes a diplomat. Ulysses Jr., who's known as Buck. Ellen, who's known as Nellie, is a White House bride. And Jesse is probably the most well-known. He is going to change parties instead of being a Republican like his dad. He's going to become a Democrat and runs against William Jennings Bryan for the Democratic nomination for president in 1908. He is unsuccessful. And then William Jennings Bryan is unsuccessful. So it's kind of a bummer all around on that one. Rutherford B. Hayes has three sons, Burchard, Webb, and Rutherford, which are three names, I'll tell you what. Um, the middle one, Webb, is, spends, is career military. He's a veteran of three wars and a Medal of Honor recipient for his involvement in the Philippine insurrection. So Webb is kind of a, a star, not the only presidential son to win, uh, receive the Medal of Honor, FYI. We'll get to another one in a bit. Uh, and Rutherford, the youngest, becomes a librarian. Yay, librarians. 
That's sweet. And then you can talk about Garfield because you love him so. <laughs> I do. So James Garfield uh, and his wife Lucretia will have seven children, five of whom uh, live into adulthood. They are not in the White House for very long. To learn more about Garfield's presidency, you should listen to our Garfield and Gateau podcast. But as a little bit of a spoiler, Garfield is assassinated in his term and is only going to be president for a handful of months. So his children are not going to live the White House very long. But I have to mention his one son, Irvin, who is probably, I would put up there as one of the rowdiest White House children. There's a few others. Tad Lincoln definitely gets some attention from historians. All of the Roosevelt children really are kind of, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's children are all kind of rowdy. But Irvin was definitely a bit of a troublemaker. His parents once said that he marched to the beat of his own drummer. They homeschooled him because he was a little bit rowdy and obnoxious. They tried to send him to school for a short time, but it did not go well. They actually, he and his brother Abram were basically kind of kicked out for talking too much and spelling and writing poorly. Now, this could not have been ideal for President Garfield, uh, James Garfield, because he, in addition to being like a brilliant general and statesman, had also been a professor and a college president. So having sons who were like not interested in sitting down and schooling was probably not very good. There are lots of stories about Irvin being kind of problematic inside the White House. He was said to have ridden his high-wheeled bicycle indoors, careening down the stairs from the first to second floor. And anytime the weather was bad, he would just do all of his outdoor activities inside. So playing with the animals and racing and climbing. He would deny this as an adult. He tells his niece, that all of his bike riding on the steps happened outside and that he could flip off his bicycle on the stone steps outside the White House. Despite all that rambunctiousness, though, he, like most of the Garfield children that live to adulthood, does become successful. He's a very successful lawyer. Um, actually, he and his brothers uh, have a law firm, Garfield and Garfield, in Ohio. Uh, and he goes on to sort of follow a bit in his father's footsteps, having become very involved in higher ed and sort of supporting institutions of higher learning. But yeah, the Garfield children, it couldn't have been easy. They're all still fairly young when Garfield is assassinated, so they lose their father while they're still children. It's really kind of unfortunate. Chester Arthur, three children, two of whom, Chester and Nell, live to adulthood. And then we get to Grover Cleveland. And who boy, guys, Grover Cleveland. We're going to do a whole thing about Cleveland because there's some stuff. But he's the only president to marry in the White House building. Two other presidents have married while president, but they didn't marry in the building itself. So he gets married. He's like, has a White House wedding himself, not for his daughter. And Cleveland was in his 40, late 40s when he gets married. He had been a bachelor when he was elected. And he had his eye on the daughter of a friend, uh, friends of his. Uh, her name was Frances Folsom. And she was very beautiful. And he was basically waiting for her to get old enough so that he could marry her, which is weird. They have six children, including baby Ruth. Their first daughter is Ruth Cleveland, and the uh, candy bar is named for her 
not for the baseball player, which is a very common misconception, but it is named for her. So the, the um, candy maker is so excited that there is a uh, little girl in the White House, the sort of brand new baby, the presidential baby, uh, that they're going to name the candy bar Baby Ruth in her honor. Uh, their second child, Esther, remains the only child born in the building of the White House itself. So presidents have had children while they are president, but not actually in the building itself. So Esther was born in the White House. Dick Cleveland becomes involved in the Alger Hiss case. He's a lawyer later on in life. And so he's involved in like the Alger Hiss um, sort of spy case, which is fantastic. And Francis becomes an actor. We are missing one Grover Cleveland child, potentially, um, which is there was quite a bit of scandal around a child named Oscar Folsom Cleveland, who could very well have been the child of Grover Cleveland. I won't get too much into it because I hope that we will do a full podcast on this, but there were um, payments made to a woman named Maria, um, and there was enough coverage of this in the press that when he was running for president, his opponents would hire children to go to his campaign events and chant, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Off to the White House, ha, ha, ha. So it was definitely enough of a scandal, um, whether true or not, that Grover Cleveland had to kind of deal with these chanting children at his presidential campaign events. Benjamin Harrison has two kids. Russell Harrison is kind of a ne'er-do-well. This happens. This happens. Uh, Russell Harrison seems to have been really interested in taking advantage of his father's position. And a lot actually of the sort of anti-nepotism laws that we have today are because of Russell Harrison. He's going to live in the White House. He's very much sort of the little prince. Uh, and he gets appointed to a bunch of things that he's not really qualified and sort of spends a lot of time lording it over Washington and is part of the reason why his father is only serving one term, uh, because there's just so much outcry about overreach uh, of the Harrison family. William McKinley had two daughters, him and his wife Ida have two daughters that die very young, well before he's politically active. Uh, so he is, uh, him and his wife don't have children while they're in the White House. And then there's Teddy. So we already talked about Teddy, or at Teddy's oldest daughter, Alice, rather, and she's a whole thing. So go listen to that. The rest of his kids, predictably, are kind of superstars, too, because Teddy Roosevelt's a superstar. His oldest son, Teddy Jr., was a kind of a badass. Teddy Roosevelt Jr. is the oldest and highest ranking American to storm the beaches in the first wave at D-Day. He's 56 years old when D-Day happens. And he could, he was of a rank and an age certainly where he could have very easily just sort of watched the goings on. But he said, no, 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 he wants to be there on the beaches with his guys. And at some point, it's not really clear when he starts to have chest pains uh, right around then because it's D-Day and you're invading people and it's bad. And he doesn't tell anybody about it because he's worried that they'll take him away from his men, which is obviously what should have happened 
because he drops dead six weeks into Nor the Normandy campaign of a heart attack. He is awarded the Medal of Honor. He's the other presidential son to have uh, been awarded the Medal of Honor uh, and is buried in Normandy. He's actually buried at the American Cemetery at Normandy next to his youngest brother, Quentin Roosevelt, was a, a pilot, a pretty good one actually in the First World War. And pilots in the First World War, this was like daredevil stuff. They were really... Um, cowboys of the sky in a good in a big way and Quentin dies in a dogfight in the first world war and is uh, actually was interred after the first world war but when his older brother dies they're going to reinter him uh, at the American cemetery in Normandy so they're actually buried side by side uh, they have a couple siblings uh, Kermit is going to struggle with depression his whole whole life. Uh, never really feels like he measures up. His father is aware of this. And in fact, there's a really great book where Roosevelt, after he's done being president, is going to basically survey a tributary of the Amazon River in South America. And he takes Kermit with him to sort of clear Kermit's head and kind of get Kermit sort of on the straight and narrow path. Uh, ultimately does not work. Kermit sort of descends into alcoholism and depression uh, and is going to commit suicide during World War II. Uh, so if you're counting, that's three sons that die. Teddy Roosevelt is aware of the first one, but then he dies and his widow, Edith, she actually outlives three of her five children. So Teddy Jr., Quentin, who dies in the war, and then Kermit commits suicide uh, during the Second World War. She's not told about Kermit's death. She's pretty ill and rather elderly herself. And so no one tells her uh, of his death and she dies a few years later. Uh, her other two children are Ethel and Archibald. Those are the round out the Roosevelt kids. So William Howard Taft and his wife, Helen Nellie Taft, have three children. And I'm going to say this is kind of rare. Three winners. I think all three Taft kids are awesome. Um, they are all high achievers. They're all very aware of the weight that comes with having a famous name. William Howard Taft is unique among American presidents, having been one of only a handful of presidents to have never served in an elected office prior to being president and to have not served in the military. So if you take out kind of our military presidents, it's really rare to be president without having served a bunch of elected positions. So there's definitely a sense in the Taft family that they are fortunate and lucky to have the opportunities that they have. And so all three of their kids really um, succeed. They have two boys, Robert and Charles, and then a daughter, Helen uh, Heron Taft, who becomes Helen Heron Taft Manning. Uh, but she's also nicknamed Nellie like her mother to make things super confusing. I'll start actually with Helen because I think she's fantastic. She's the only daughter. Um, she goes to Bryn Mawr, which she later becomes president of Bryn Mawr College. She is considered the smartest of their three kids by her father. Uh, her father believes Helen to be the smartest even smarter than the boys, which I love. She is going to be a student at Bryn Mawr when her father becomes president. And she actually has to leave school because her mother, Helen, has a stroke while the Tafts are living in the White House. This was something that was kept pretty quiet in the press. But Helen Taft, for several months, uh, had to regain essentially her speech and her ability to move. So her daughter, Nellie, moves into the White House helps her with her physical therapy and basically serves as first lady while her mother's recovering. 
Helen Nellie or Helen Heron Taft Nellie, the daughter Nellie, uh, becomes a suffragist. Uh, she's very active in the suffrage movement. She actually travels around the country giving speeches in support of uh, the vote, but also for women's rights, even after the 19th Amendment is achieved. She's going to go on to be a well-respected historian. She actually will attend Yale later in life uh, and earn a doctorate in history from Yale. Uh, her papers today are all at Bryn Mawr, uh, and she lives to be almost 100 years old. She's the longest living of the three Taft children. Charles Taft, uh, the youngest son, becomes a lawyer and a prosecutor. He is a kind of mover and shaker in the Republican Party. He's mayor of Cincinnati for one term. So for two years, he's mayor of Cincinnati. He was nicknamed Mr. Cincinnati. <laughs> which is just like a fun nickname. He went to Yale as well, although he dropped out so he could serve in the First World War. Um, he was allegedly in Skull and Bones, um, which I assume all the all these famous yuppity yups were in. He was also a huge fan of the Cincinnati Reds, and he would plan his entire city council meeting schedule around when the Reds were playing, so he never had to be in a meeting when the Reds played. Uh, he kept an earplug in his ear if he had to go to a meeting during a Reds game. If you know a little bit about William Howard Taft, he was a big baseball fan. Charles definitely inherited his love of baseball. Most famous of the Taft children, though, is the eldest son, Robert Taft. Robert um, Alfonso Taft Sr. becomes a huge player in the Republican Party. He is going to be a senator. He's going to serve as Senate Majority Leader. He's considered today um, one of the most influential members of the U.S. Senate in the 20th century. John F. Kennedy said that he was one of the five most powerful people to have served in the U.S. Senate. He was Mr. Republican. And if you think about what the Republican Party meant kind of in the middle of the 20th century, Robert A. Taft embodied all of that. He actually has a memorial in D.C., a bell tower on the kind of campus of of the United States Capitol building, which is sort of unusual. Not a lot of senators get that memorializing, which is kind of uh, unusual um, as well. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to add anything about Robert Taft. I actually want to add something about the younger one, Charles. We've mentioned him before in a pod. Becca, do you know which pod? Um, I don't remember. He was the prosecutor of... Um, uh, our New Year's Eve episode. That's um, right. You know, that George was Remus. Because it was yes. all Ohio, all Ohioans. Oh, <laughs> uh, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson has three daughters, Margaret, Jesse, and Eleanor. Jesse becomes a suffragist, which I'm sure her father must have loved. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Can't resist a dig on Woodrow Wilson, guys. I take every, any opportunity. Uh, and Eleanor, the youngest, her husband, William McAdoo, is going to run for president himself and does not win uh, in the 20s. For Warren Harding, see our pod, just about him. We're, we're going to leave that there. <laughs> Although I will mention, if you haven't listened to our Harding pod, that when Harding marries his wife, Florence, she is, like a lot of the women who we've talked about up to this point, already has a child. She has been married previously. So he will become stepfather to her child who dies in his 20s. So he doesn't live super long. But, you know, we do have a lot of presidents who become fathers when they marry 
because their wives have already had children. Uh, the Coolidges have two sons, Calvin Jr. and John. Calvin Jr., kind of a tragic story. He become, dies of sepsis while his uh, father is president. Very, he basically has a cut that turns septic and it kills him because this is the 20s and he's a young kid. He's a teenager and his father never really recovers. And so there's a lot of like recent scholarship about how Calvin Coolidge was suffering from this very deep depression for a lot of the time he was in uh, the White House and was president. And that might have been why he was not sort of more active and more effective. Um, his young, his brother, John, John Coolidge becomes a railroad executive. Hoover has two sons, Herbert Jr. and Alan. FDR has five children that live to adulthood. They have one child dies very young as a baby, uh, but Anna, James, Elliot, Franklin, and John, they have between the five of them, 19 spouses. So some of them are very much married. Um, and it is always interesting to me to sort of reflect like FDR was a great president, but it kind of seems like not perhaps so much of a good dad. Like he seems to have been kind of a little bit of a distant dad. His sons will all like, particularly his, his um, four sons are going to be, um, they try to trade on the family name. Franklin Roosevelt Jr. is the best looking of the three. He's kind of got, if you look him up, he's got sort of some matinee idol looks as a young man. Uh, and so he's going to try to a political career, uh, but none of them seem to have whatever it is their dad had uh, and just can't quite make uh, a success of it. Do you want to talk about Truman? Yes. And I will just say about Calvin Coolidge and the loss of, of their child, Grace Coolidge was actually praised in the press for resuming her public schedule just three weeks after her son had died. And she would continually be praised for not letting her son's death kind of get in the way of being first lady, which I think is so wrong and messed up and weird that she gets all this attention for basic not publicly grieving her son so just weird weird so that's something that like Coolidge was also contending with is here's his wife getting all this public praise for basically moving on at least publicly you know in a public facing way so um it wouldn't surprise me that he was really struggling internally because it's just so crazy so yes so harry truman my birthday buddy in fact our, by the time this airs we'll be coming up upon mine and harry's birthday because our birthday falls right before the day before mother's day this year he and his wife um have one daughter her name is margaret margaret truman is a very long-lived presidential child um she lives into her 80s she goes on to have kind of a long, very public-facing career. But as a young woman, when her father is president, she is interested in becoming a singer. She was a soprano. She tries to become kind of a concert singer. Um, the Washington Post music critic was not very impressed with her. In 1947, he said that Margaret Truman should refrain from public appearances for at least two or three years so that she could take the time to learn to sing properly which is like not ideal. That happens, uh, and a few years later, she is gonna perform in uh, 1950 at Constitution Hall at the Daughters of the American Revolution building, and she gives a concert, and the same music critic attends, and he writes a review in the Washington Post. He says, she is flat a good deal of the time, more last night than any time we've heard her in past years. Miss Truman has not improved in the years we have heard her. Now, you know, you're a dad like Harry S. Truman. You read this review of your daughter and, you know, you're protective. 
that's that's what fathers do. Um, and so Truman decides to give this music critic a piece of his mind. And what he does is he writes a response, but he does it on White House stationery. So he puts the muscle of the presidency behind it. And he writes this man and says, I've just read your lousy review of Margaret's concert. It seems to me that you are a frustrated old man who wishes he could have been more successful. And then he says, someday I hope to meet you. When that happens, you'll need a new nose, a lot of beefsteak for black eyes, and perhaps a supporter below. And then he signs it. HST <laughs> um, instead of like President Truman, but he signs his initials. Now, this becomes a little bit of a scandal because, you know, the president probably shouldn't be threatening individuals on White House stationery. There has to be a little bit of an apology. You know what I mean? There's a little bit of an apology. Basically, the critic just says, you know, I'm free to my opinion. The president's free to his. But people actually wrote into the paper and they liked the fact that Truman was like defending his daughter, sort of sticking up for her. Although there were a few people who said um, this guy probably shouldn't have the nuclear codes if this is how he's going to react to one bad review. Now, Margaret does not have a very successful career ultimately as a singer, probably because she was not particularly talented, um, although she does sort of sing through the the, the 1950s. Um, she takes advantage, though, of her famous name. She appears on TV shows. Uh, we don't have a lot of first children um, up to this point who have been as active in media. She's kind of the first to do things like um, game shows and stuff. Um, she's going to become a journalist and a radio personality. Um, she's going to move into the world of journalism, and she becomes a very successful writer. Most people, if they know Margaret Truman today, know her books. She wrote both nonfiction books about first ladies and first families. Um, she did well-received biographies of her parents, but she also wrote a series of murder mysteries which are kind of great. Um, if you haven't read her murder mysteries, they're fun. They're always set in D.C. They have some, of some really fun insidery D.C. stuff. She lived in Georgetown. When she stayed in D.C., she usually would stay in Georgetown. And so Martin's Tavern, which we've mentioned on the podcast a number of times, makes an appearance in quite a few of Margaret Truman's books. Eisenhower had two sons. Only one lives. Uh, his son, John. John's son, David, by the way, is who Camp David is named for. Uh, Eisenhower was going to re rename um, what had been Franklin Roosevelt's presidential retreat in the Catoctin Mountains in Maryland. He renames it for his grandson, David. Uh, and that's where we get Camp David. David is still alive, Eisenhower's grandson, and is still married to Trisha Nixon, daughter of Richard Nixon. It all comes together, gang. The only two first children, I think, to marry each other. Grandchild. Grandchild. That's true. That's right. Grandchild. That's still like still pretty intermingled. It is a little intermingled. It's a little weird. JFK has two children, John Jr. and Caroline. Caroline is still very much alive. She was ambassador to Japan under President Obama. Although the Kennedys do have two other children, Patrick, who I missed earlier, who dies just three days old, and a daughter who was born unnamed, stillborn. Those are the two children that are buried with John and Jackie at Arlington National Cemetery. So sometimes when people visit, they're surprised to see that there are two young children, two infant children that are buried there with the Kennedys. And the Johnsons, both of their daughters are still living. Uh, Lucy Baines and Linda Bird Johnson. They're all LBJ which is cute, kind of cute. 
kind of weird. Um, Linda Bird marries Charles Robb, who served in the military and then was a senator and then governor of Virginia uh, for many years. And all the, so we're getting into the, the sort of area where presidential children are still living. Uh, Nixon's two daughters, Trisha and Julie, are still alive. All four of Gerald Ford's kids are still living, Michael, John, Stephen, and Susan. Uh, and then we're kind of getting into living presidents. So we're going to just, we try not to talk about living presidents uh, and uh, talking about their living children, I think is uh, a little bit of enough too, because we don't want to get too much into that. But the, you can kind of look up the presidential children used to be sort of in the early days of the Republic, not really focused on by the press. That is going to change uh, actually Theodore Roosevelt's family, his sort of big, enormous family changes a lot of that, particularly Alice Roosevelt Longworth uh, becomes sort of the first celebrity presidential child. Uh, and since then, presidential children have been very much in the spotlight. Uh, some of them choose to be and some of them don't. And I think it's always one of those things that the press should be a little bit more careful of, particularly when presidents have young children, is that they are, um, you know, it's not fair to put the young kids in the spotlight. They didn't choose this. And so that's kind of one of my things about presidential children. Like if they're adults and they choose to be involved, you know, Russell Harrison chose to be involved in his father's presidency. That's, he's fair game. But when you have young kids that choose to stay out of the spotlight, I feel like they should be, that should be respected. Uh, and so that is... Um, some presidential kids, Becca. <laughs> there are two um, deceased presidents who have living children. Ronald Reagan, um, who has three children with his first wife, two children and then one adopted child, and then two children with Nancy Reagan, including John Jr. and Patty. Guys, Patty Davis, as she goes by, is my favorite presidential child, I think, of the 20th century. She is just insane. Um, she definitely follows a path that's a little um, more provocative, let's say. She poses for Playboy magazine, doing a full frontal pictorial. She wrote a tell-all book all about her parents. Um, she has dated actors. She was like involved with musicians. If you want to get some really good grade A, like 1980s and 90s gossip, read Patty's book. Um, she's definitely quite interesting to me. And then, of course, uh, President George H.W. Bush, who passed away just a couple of years ago, has quite a number of uh, children, many of whom are still in the public eye, George, Jeb, Neil, Marvin, and Doro. Um, you certainly hear about the Bush offspring frequently. But there was also Robin, who died of leukemia as a baby. So again, we talked about presidential loss of children at the top of the episode, and that's still something that um, impacts presidents even as we move into the 21st century. So yeah, a little overview of presidential children. Um, hopefully you got a taste of some of these children and some of the trouble uh, some of them have gotten into. I think much like the American presidency, there's nothing new when it comes to presidential kids. I think there can be a lot of attention sometimes today when presidential children get in the news or get caught doing something that children or teenagers do. But trust me, they have been causing trouble from day one. It's it's not a new not a new activity at all. And certainly having done this episode, I can think of about five presidential children. I hope we will do full episodes on in the future. Oh my gosh, there's so many uh, interesting presidential children. 
Um, and so many of them deserve their own episodes. So yes, we'll come back to this one again. <laughs> Thank you guys so very much for listening. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the Twitters at Tour Guide Tell. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Tour Guide Tell All. We are also, you can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Thanks especially to our patrons. You guys are amazing and we are so grateful for your support. If you'd like to become a patron, we are on Patreon at Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, and uh, we got a whole exciting slate of May episodes coming that are very wonderful. And we will be back with you next week. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time.